Just a good old boy Never meaning no harm It beats all you never saw Any trouble with a law Since the day they was born CDs in the lobby. I'll be signing them after the service. Don't worry about it. Whoo! And here beginneth the lesson. I think just the good old boys is a perfect Father's Day reminder that fathering, I mean, I mean real fathering, is about so, so much more than just being a good old boy. It's about so, so much more than raising up good old boys and girls. When you understand this divine calling that God places on men's lives to be fathers, you start to understand the day-to-day the -day and the lifelong and even the eternity-shaking consequences of this calling called fatherhood. It is a big, big deal. So, with profound apologies to the late, great Waylon Jennings. Just a good old boy just ain't gonna cut it. Being a good guy, raising up good girls and good boys is just the price of admission. That's where it just is getting started because here's the deal. Real fathering using the word father as a verb, real fathering it is not just a, a biological compulsion that results in kids who look like us. Anybody can do that. Real fathering is a spiritual commission that results in children of God who look like him. That's the name of the game. That's what fathering is all about. Now, I have to tell you, 
I am more than a little fired up about this weekend, not just because it's Father's Day, not just because we got to start with a little Waylon Jennings for our theological foundation today, but because of what I believe God wants to do in this time, because of what I think God is going to do in the lives of fathers and, and therefore in the lives of families if we really and truly own this calling, this responsibility, this privilege to be fathers. But it's not just in the lives of the men who are fathers or who will be fathers. It's also, it's also for those fathers or, or people who, for whom Father's Day is not a celebration. Maybe, maybe you're a dad and you've got a, a, an adult child or children who so far have chosen paths that you never would have chosen for them. Maybe you're estranged from a child. Or maybe for you, just the subject of fatherhood itself stirs up a lot of pain and hurt because of the home that you grew up in. If you're anywhere in that group today, I just want to tell you that I'm going to ask you just to hang in there with us. I promise you, God's got something for you in this time as well. But there's another group that I'm also excited to, to address today, and this is really important. I'm talking about all the single ladies in the house. I'm talking about students. I'm talking about single adults who are not yet married. The kind of man that we're going to describe today is the kind of man that you ought to hold out for. They're, they're, they're going to come in a lot of different shapes and sizes and personality types and backgrounds. Those things are, are as myriad as they can be. But what we're going to talk about today does, in fact, kind of lay out some non-negotiable, some things that you ought to hold out for and not settle for anything less than as you're thinking about the person that you might give yourself to in marriage, the person that you might potentially parent children with. This is what you ought to be looking for. Now, for the last few weeks, we've been in this study called Founding Father. We're, we're tracing the arc of Abraham's life through Genesis. And we called it Founding Father because Abraham is the founding father of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. But within the context of the scriptural record, there is this moment in Abraham's life that I have to tell you, I have missed until the last two weeks. This is a brand new realization for me. It's something that I'm so excited about sharing with you and what's interesting to me is how God orchestrated this because this fits in perfectly with where we have been and where we're going in the next few weeks. But it also speaks specifically to Father's Day. It's in Genesis chapter 18. If you've got your Bibles with you, go there. And there's, there's actually one verse that's really kind of a, I would tell you it is the linchpin of the divine direction of Abraham's life. Just to catch you up to speed, if you're new or if you haven't been here or you're watching online for the first time, Abraham was a man that God really plucked out of obscurity. He was a, a Bedouin nomad roaming from place to place with his incredible vast herds and flocks. And God said, Abraham, I will make of you a great nation. And I will make of you a great nation that we know became the nation of Israel. But before it was Israel, it was just Abraham. It was just Abraham and his wife Sarah and their flocks. And God said, I will make of you a great nation. But in Genesis chapter 18, 
there is this linchpin moment, not only in Abraham's life, but also in the, in the redemptive narrative of Scripture, this, this one moment where God's plan to bless the whole world through Abraham and Sarah comes down to this directive that God gives to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 18, it's an amazing, amazing moment, but one that is packed with significance, packed with meaning. As a matter of fact, there are four kind of paternal principles, principles of the biblical patriarchy, if you will, that God references specifically to Abraham but become generally relevant for every father since then. And it's, it's really verse 19 that we're going to clue in on, but I'm going to read 17 and 18 to kind of help set the context for this moment. This is what the Bible says. Should I hide my plan from Abraham, the Lord asked? For Abraham will certainly become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. Now, just so you're clear, God is not wondering what to do here. God's not like, I don't know. Should I go this way or should I go that way? This is a poetic device that the author of Scripture, inspired by the Spirit of God, uses to show how God is unfolding his plan for humanity, his plan for Abraham. And he says, should I hide my plan? He said, I know that I'm going to make of him a great nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. This, of course, is referencing Christ. There's this covenant relationship that God has with Abraham that culminates in Christ. But it begins here with Abraham, who at the moment has no children. Abraham is almost 100 years old. His wife, Sarah, is almost 90 years old. They have no children, and yet God has said, you will have so many descendants. It, it, to try to count your descendants would be like trying to count the stars in the heavens or the grains of sand on the ocean shore. That's the plan that God's talking about here. Look at verse 19. Here it is. Here, here's the, the takeaway. God said, I have singled him out. I have singled him out so that he will direct his sons and their families to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Then I will do for Abraham all that I have promised. Now, we're going to spend most of our time in verse 19, but I want to point that little thing out to you right there where it says, I have singled him out. God, God is showing through Abraham, in Abraham, but certainly through him, that fathering is a calling from God. Fathering is a calling from God. Now, you and I both know anybody can, can help make a baby. I don't have to go into too much graphic detail on that. that. That's pretty much anybody. But to be a father, to be a father, God says, I have singled him out. I thought about this. I, I remember, I remember when, when our kids were born, particularly Emily, because she was the firstborn. I remember the day that Emily was born just being completely overwhelmed. First of all, when Emily was born, it opened up a vein of love in me I didn't even know I was capable of. I'll never forget when she came into the world, I was just like, oh my gosh, Julie's been carrying this for nine months, a job I never wanted. 
Can, you know, one time Julie asked me when she was pregnant, she goes, are you ever jealous that I get to do this? I said, not once. <laughs> not once. But man, when Emily was born, I was just like, just overwhelmed with this, this like I said, this vein of love I didn't know I was capable of. But then I was also overwhelmed because I remember looking at her in the crib in the hospital room going, I'm responsible for that. I've got to make sure she eats. I have to feed her. Well, initially Julie fed her, but I, had to, I was responsible for the whole you know, ecosystem. I had to make sure that there was food, that she would have clothing, that she, there would be insurance because kids get hurt. They break their arms. They get stitches. They do all, I mean, kids are expensive. Would somebody help me preach? <laughs> and, and it's not until you really see that child for the first time that you're like, Cha-ching, cha-ching, cha You can know it, but you don't know it, you know? But I don't think what I, what, I don't think I realized in that moment, though, that, that God, God had created Emily on purpose. We, we know, of course, that God never creates an accident. No matter how surprising it may be that a child comes along, Psalm 139 says that God knows us. He knows us before he knits us together in our mother's womb. Isn't that amazing? That your soul, my soul, is accounted for before two cells come together and begin the process that results in a human life being born. So, so before conception, forget at conception, before conception, you, your children, that, that is a soul accounted for by God himself. So that matters. But if, if that's true for that child, and it is, it naturally follows that God also knows who the parents are going to be, that God calls that father and that mother to fulfill the responsibilities of fathering and mothering. And we don't have to belabor the point. Not everybody fulfills those responsibilities. But the fact is, if you... Follow me. If you enjoy the benefits of procreation, then you also assume the responsibility of procreation. This is a God-given calling. And so again, I, I want to say to all the single ladies in the house, and, and anybody, think about who you're going to marry. Somebody. I mean, Somebody ought to shout amen at that. I'm just saying, you mean, some of you, ladies, if you think about the fact that, that you, when you date somebody and ultimately marry somebody, you could be bringing children into the world with this person who is supposed to be following God as a father. Some of you right now are thinking about some people that you've dated before and you're going, Ooh. and rightly so. I've had the same sensation in a different setting and context. But my point is, this is a divine calling from God. God said, I have singled Abraham out. I've singled him out, and I've called him. But there's this, this idea that it's not just singling out. It's not just a calling. There's this next wave where, where God explains that fathering is collaborating with God. Following, uh, fathering is collaboration with God. When, when you father a child, you are collaborating with God himself. 
You're collaborating to create life, but then the fathering kicks in when you get to collaborate with God in bringing this child up, this boy, this girl, these children. What did God say? He said, should I hide my plan from Abraham? Isn't that amazing that God chose to engage with Abraham just one-on-one? He chose to, to make Abraham a part of the process. I love the word collaboration because it's, it's co-laboring. We're, we're working together with God to father these children. God says, should I hide my plan? No, no, no. I'm going to reveal my plan. I'm going to show Abraham what I want him to do as a father. Now, the context of this is really important because just before this part of the conversation, God had just told Abraham that one year from now, his wife Sarah would be pregnant with a child, and that child would be the heir through whom God would bless the world ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ. But the Bible says that Sarah was eavesdropping on God and Abraham's conversation. And when God says, you will have a child a year from now, Sarah laughed. (laughs) He's almost 100. I'm almost 90. What do you mean we're having children? We don't have any kids right now. But God was inviting them to collaborate in a process that required the supernatural hand of God. And that is fathering. On my best day, I can't do what God calls me to do as a father. I, remember, I, just, I know I don't have the wisdom that it takes to be the father that my kids need me to be. To be the father that God is calling me to be, I have to collaborate with God. I have to ask for his Holy Spirit's wisdom. I have to ask for his grace. I have to ask for his patience. Somebody. I, we have to collaborate with God. But there's another part of this that, that seems almost out of place. Because in Genesis chapter 19, we get to the part of the story with Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, we haven't even mentioned Sodom and Gomorrah yet. Earlier in the story, Abraham and his nephew Lot had parted ways because their their herds and their flocks had become so vast, one piece of land couldn't support both of them. So, Abraham gave his nephew Lot the choice. Do you want to go this way? you want to go that way? Lot looked out across that plain. He said, I'm going that way where the grass is greener. And And he pitched his tents towards Sodom and Gomorrah, the Bible says. Now, You may have heard Sodom and Gomorrah before. The best way to describe Sodom and Gomorrah at this point is that Sodom and Gomorrah would be like, let's say, Vegas and Miami on spring break all the time. That's the best. I mean, just complete depravity, decadence, sin, evil, just on and on and on. Whatever you can imagine and stuff you don't want to imagine, that was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. But it's at this point that that Abraham begins to pray for Sodom and Gomorrah. God is about to bring judgment to Sodom and Gomorrah. And as a spoiler alert, I'll just kind of tell you, God ends up destroying these cities because of their evil. And and I know sometimes that's kind of like, that's kind of harsh, destroy the whole city and everybody who lived in it. Let me just remind you, God is always good and graceful, and gracious, and God is always right. When God issues the verdict, 
He's not being harsh. As a matter of fact, the heart of God, the Bible says, God is slow and patient, wanting no one to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's the heart of God. But sometimes God knows that people are just not gonna do it. And it's at that point that he issues judgment. That's where Sodom and Gomorrah were. But Abraham went to God and began to to intercede and to, to plead for Sodom and Gomorrah. He said, God, if I could find 50 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, would you not destroy those cities? 50 people. And God said, all right, Abraham, you find me 50, I'm not gonna do it. Well, Abraham starts thinking, God agreed to that a little too quickly. Maybe, maybe if I found 45, God says, okay. And so this bargaining and haggling between God and Abraham proceeds. 50, okay, 45. Well, what about 40? What about 30? What about 20? What about 10? And finally, you see, because the whole time, Abraham's thinking about his nephew, Lot. He's going to, I've got to get Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah. See, Lot, Lot had at first just pitched his tents towards Sodom and Gomorrah. But by Genesis 19, he's living in Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, that's, that's a whole sermon series unto itself. Isn't that the truth, that, that that's kind of the progression of sin in our lives? We're kind of like, I wonder what that's like. I, yeah, I, oh, I'd never do that, but I'm just curious. I mean, people seem to be having fun with it. And, and then we, we pitch our tents, we, we cast our eyes, and we're like, that's not that bad. And before we know it, we're living in the middle of it. This is the principle going on in the life of Lot You see, Abraham was collaborating with God. Abraham saw his role not only as a father to the child that would be born in a year, but also he he saw his role in his community, in in the place where he lived, to be a blessing, to to help, and to to move the purposes of God forward. And this is actually, it's amazing how this narrative flows. So you start with this calling from God, and then there's this collaboration with God, But it's not just collaboration and working. Collaborating with God, fathering is co-blessing with God. Real fathering is when we choose to be co-blessers with God, where we're raising up children and we're living our lives in a way that blesses the people around us. And this is really important. We're raising up children that are a blessing. You know what I'm saying? So like when they go to school, when they go into the classroom, the teacher is glad to see them. Not, we're not the parent that you know, sends an email and goes, I think Johnny's a little bored. Could you challenge him a little more? No, Johnny needs to sit his little behind down and pay attention and do what the teacher says to do. Don't be that parent. And, and, and I tell you that because I love you. My wife was a teacher. My mother was a teacher. I love teachers. But we have to teach our kids that they're gonna have to handle some unfairness in life. They, the teacher may be dead wrong. You do your children no favor to go before them and try to smooth out every path. I remember one teacher I had in middle school. This woman, she was mean as a snake, pit viper. And I'm, listen, that's not a judgment call, that's just an observation of fact. Like today's Sunday, this lady was mean. Well, I remember my mom, God bless her. My mom sat me down in eighth grade, and she said, Mac, how old do you think this teacher is? I said, I don't know, about 140. 
She said, okay, let's say that she's, let's say she's half that. What are the odds that we're going to change her? I go, none. I was really handling it so maturely. She goes, I think you're probably right about it. She, she said, for the record, she's wrong in the way she's been handling this. But you have to figure out how to handle that. This is not the last teacher, coach, or professor that you're going to have who's not being fair. Fair is something you pay to ride the bus. Fair is not this world that we live in. And, and by the way, let me just ask you a question. Forget your children for a second. How many of you have ever had a boss who signs your paychecks who is unreasonable or unfair? Can I just see a show of hands? Isn't it great that we get to teach our children how to handle that before they get to that place and have to get paid by that person? That doesn't mean that we say everything that they do or that every time the authority is right, but it means that we teach our children how to be a blessing in the world that they live in when things are good and when things are bad. This fathering gig is co-blessing. Look, look at what's going on here with Abraham. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. Julie and I, we've... I've shared this with you. We've got two biological kids of our own, Emily and Joe. We've got two other kids who came into our lives late. They, they were already kind of in college and through with college, which, by the way, if you ever have the option, that's the way to do it. <laughs> no change diapers, no paying for college, just enjoy the blessing. And it's a tremendous blessing. But we're still parenting. We're, I'm still fathering. Julie's still momming these adult kids. Now, they're out on their own. They're buying their own food. They're doing this. It is great that way too. Jordan Peterson is a clinical psychologist and a lecturer. And in his book, 12 Rules for Life, he has an entire chapter devoted to this. Never let your children do anything that would cause you to dislike them. That will preach. I love that. Never let your children do anything that would cause you to dislike them. Now, some of you who don't have kids are thinking, well, I would never dislike my children. <laughs> That's so cute. Listen, we love our kids unconditionally. I would die, I literally would die for them, take a bullet, throw myself in front of a speeding car, whatever. I don't like them all the time. You know how many Chick-fil-A's we walked out of because they were having a temper tantrum? <laughs> but by the time they got to high school, that was pretty much done. <laughs> Thank you for paying attention. <laughs> Fathering is co-blessing. I have singled him out so that all the world will be blessed through him. But there is, there, there is an, another layer to this that, that's in this passage. I've singled him out so that he will direct his sons and their families to keep the way of the Lord. Fathering is absolutely coaching with God. It's coaching with God. We direct our children, we guide them, we lead them. 
Now, you cannot control your children. And when I say you cannot control them, I don't mean it's, it's a bad idea, you shouldn't try to do this. I mean, you can't control them. Little hoodlums. There, there's this incredible reality. God has created our children with free will. It is so inconvenient. But that means that hypothetically, if, if we did everything right, never made a parental error ever, let's just say, our kids could still choose to do wrong. They, they get to a point where, where they have responsibility. They've got skin in the game. But dads and moms, but, but dads, I'm talking to you because it's Father's Day. When we coach our children with God, we direct them towards their perfect heavenly father. Our job is to point them towards the only one who will never disappoint them throughout their entire lives. We will teach them to love the Lord, love his house, and love his ways. That's what this job is all about. It's a calling. It is absolutely collaborating. It is co-laboring. But it's also co-blessing the world and the community, the town, the school, our families. But ultimately, we are called to coach. We are called to direct them toward Christ. This is the ultimate blessing. God said, I've, I've singled Abraham out. And, I, and I've singled him out so that he will teach his children to follow me, to do what is right and just. You can't teach him to do that if you're not showing him how to do it. 80% of fathering is more caught than taught. It's what they see us do. It's what they hear us say. How we treat their mama. How we treat them when we're angry. You see, whether we like it or not, whether we like it or not, you and I, as earthly fathers, we are the primary lens through which our kids develop their image of their heavenly father. That just is. It's not the only lens, but it's the primary lens. So dads, what if, what if we removed as much as possible clutter and confusion from our kids' lives? What if we eliminated as much as we possibly can the noise and the static of life to help them as they figure out the way they should go. That is the gig. That means on your best day, on my best day, we can't do it by ourselves. That means just a good old boy, not gonna be enough. 
We got to dig in. We got to lean in. Engage. First of all, with God. If I'm called to do something I can't do, I need help. And I lift my eyes toward the mountains from where my help comes. Now, I told you at the very beginning that God had something for everybody. If you're here today and Father's Day, fatherhood in general, or, or maybe, maybe your dad in particular is not something to celebrate at whatever level for whatever reason. Please, please believe me when I tell you that God is a good, good father. God fills in the gaps that flawed and foibled fathers like me create either unwittingly or intentionally. And a lot of times the way that God fills in those gaps is through other people who come alongside and help to father. They may not be the biological connection, but they're the spiritual commission of God to help in your life, to help in my life. On June 19th, 1865, U.S. General Gordon Granger docked in Galveston, Texas. He had come in to usher in reconstruction in the state of Texas after the Civil War. But more specifically, General Granger showed up with an announcement. General Granger announced there on the shores of Galveston that all slaves in Texas were from that moment freed, emancipated. The Emancipation Proclamation had been issued by Abraham Lincoln two full years before, but because Texas was so remote in the Confederacy and, and because there were a lot of people who had a vested interest in not announcing that, the slaves in Texas didn't even know until that moment. And, and then word began to trickle out and, and make its way throughout the rest of the state. And, and so that is why we rightly recognize and celebrate Juneteenth on June 19th. It's appropriate, it's right. But I think it's also an incredible reminder that in Christ Jesus, we have been set free. But that doesn't mean that we always live like it. As a matter of fact, Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the dead. It is for freedom that we have been set free, the Bible says. And yet it's still possible to live our lives shackled to past pain, hang-ups, sin. And yet we're created for more than that. That's not God's plan for your life or for my life. And it is in Christ 
that we are set free from the bondage of sin. It is in Christ that the whole world can be blessed. It is God's grace initiative that we have the opportunity to respond to. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a brief moment. And in this moment, whether you're here in the room or maybe watching online, as a church, we just want to give you the opportunity to respond to that grace initiative, to begin a relationship with God, just to, just to pray right where you are, silently, just talk from your heart to God's and say something like this. Just say, Jesus, I need you. I need you for the forgiveness of my sin. So I confess my sin. I believe that you died on the cross for me in my place and that you rose from the dead. And in this moment, I choose to receive, I choose to believe that my sins are forgiven because of you and your grace. And so I will follow you, I will walk in that grace from this moment forward with everything I have. And I pray this prayer in your name. would just remain with your heads bowed for a moment. But if that was your prayer, I want to just ask you to raise your hand. Just raise your hand and hold it up high in the air for a moment. Because your hand in the air is a statement physically of the commitment spiritually that you just made. And I want to make sure that you understand this is the biggest moment of your life. And as a church, we want to we celebrate that. We want to help with the moments that follow. And our family tradition around here is you can go ahead and put your hands down, but we're going to put our hands together and tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.